Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. There is only one color of Play-Doh. I'll say it again because some of you will think that you might disagree with me. There is only one color of Play-Doh. You might object. You might say, no, 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 Justin. I have seen, I have bought for my children, for my friends' children, a multitude of packs of Play-Doh. They have bright red and orange. There's, there's green Play-Doh. There's pink Play-Doh. There are all sorts of colors of Play-Doh. But I tell you the truth. That no Play-Doh that has been opened for more than 10 minutes maintains its normal color. What happens? It all becomes this dull, lifeless brown. And it doesn't matter how much you try to encourage your kids to keep the green Play-Doh in the green tub and the red Play-Doh in the red tub. Inevitably, it's going to become Dull, gross, brown Play-Doh. If you are a parent and you go and visit another parent's friend's house and you see that they have opened Play-Doh and it is not brown, I would urge you to be cautious. Not sure what's going on there, if that is witchcraft or something else, but all Play-Doh very quickly becomes brown Play-Doh. Why? Because it gets mixed together. That's how it works. Our society is a lot like that in some ways. Here's what I mean. You have all sorts of religious ideas. You have all sorts of philosophical uh, thoughts existing side by side. And they're spilling and mixing. They're borrowing ideas from one another. And what is happening is in our, our modern Western culture, where we have prized tolerance, which is a good thing, things have in many ways become brown. There has been overlap. There has been borrowing. Outside of, nowhere outside of America does there exist a such thing as a Hindu temple with youth group. That's a very American idea. And so many other ways that things overlap, that things coincide with one another. But what happens in an environment like this is that something else can happen. Religious ideas, philosophical ideas, this marketplace of ideas, as some of us would describe it as, begin to contend with one another and fight to see who has most, the most adherence, to see which one runs the culture. And there is jockeying for position between these ideas. And if one idea or one religion falls out of dominance, its adherents try to move it back up so that they can maintain the power and comfort that they're used to. What am I talking about? This is not a philosophy class. 
But I want to lay out this idea because I'm moving towards something meaningful. Here's what I'm moving towards. Here's the idea that I want to get at. In the past 30 years, Christianity has gone from the dominant religion in America to a religious minority. And we as the church have not handled this transition well. We've not handled this well. In fact, not only has America become not dominated by Christians, even those people who claim they are Christians on these uh, sort of surveys don't always believe in Orthodox Christianity. A group called Ligonier uh, every other year does something called the State of Theology in America. And they survey both Christians and non-Christians and compare their answers on ideas. And one of the most striking ones is in 2020, when they completed this survey, they asked professing church-attending Christians, was Jesus God? And more than 30% of church-attending professing Christians said, oh no, Jesus isn't God. Certainly not. So even among those who claim to be Christians, there is a lack of belief in the fundamental idea. So what happens? What do we do as the church, as the people of God, when we're no longer the dominant culture? We kind of have two options. The first is that we can live as exiles, strangers, the remnant. But this is incredibly difficult because none of us were taught to live this way. Outside of the youngest people here, all of us grew up in a world where Christianity was the dominant religion, the dominant idea. At least those of us from America. So we don't know how to do that. So our default is to do something else. Our default is to do this to mix Christianity with the gods of our society. To mix Christianity with our local gods. And the problem is that this mixing of Christianity and idolatry always leads to the death of the beauty of Christianity. The mixture always dulls the vibrancy of the gospel. But this temptation that we have to, to have Jesus plus something else is not new to us. It's not new to our generation. It's not the first time people have experienced this. Rather, it has been going on for a long time. And as we read through the book of Ezra, as we have been reading through the book of Ezra, this morning we come to Ezra chapter 9. And this is exactly the temptation that the people of God have fallen prey to. So what I'd like to do is read you this story from Ezra chapter 9. I'm going to be reading out of the English Standard Version, and I'm going to ask that you stand as I read this. The words will be on the screen, but you're welcome to turn in your Bibles or if you have an app or anything like that. But let us hear this story together. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the people of the lands. And in this faithlessness, 
The hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of God and of Israel, because first try, trust me, don't check my work on that. What's happening here? What's going on? Because as we sort of read this story about the people of Israel marrying outsiders, it's a little bit of us going, huh? I mean, at first blush, does this seem at least a little low-key racist maybe? Right? Right? Oh my gosh. Ezra freaks out because they're marrying other peoples. What's going on here? What's well, interesting because this text gives us the, the answer to that. This isn't an issue of, of the people of Israel having a, a racial prejudice for who their children could marry. Rather, what is going on here is the issue of keeping the people of Israel solely worshiping the one true God. They're in the midst of rebuilding the temple, the second temple. And yet as they're doing it, they're falling for the same trap that the builder of the first temple made. The first temple was built by Solomon. And we always think of Solomon as David's son who built the temple. But do you know what else Solomon built? Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem to Baal. Solomon built the Asherah pole outside the city of Jerusalem. Solomon built the temples to the Egyptian gods in Israel. Why? Why did Solomon do that? Because Solomon's Egyptian wife really wanted a temple to worship in. So Solomon provided it for her. And Solomon's Moabite wife really wanted a temple to Baal. So what did he do? He built it for her. And what happens to the people of Israel? When Solomon dies, and even before Solomon dies, they begin to see worshiping Yahweh, the one true God, as one option among many. And maybe we can add some of the cool things that they do over at the temple of Asherah into the temple of Yahweh. Wouldn't that be neat? And Ezra is, is seeing this and telling his people that you can't mix this true religion with other religions because it will always kill the beauty of what God is doing. I know it's easy to look at them and go, ah, yes, those bad people. Yes, Solomon, very bad. Mm -hmm. Yes, I know that one. Ah, the people of Israel, marrying people of different religions. Ah, very bad. Yes, don't be yoked together. It's easy for us to say that, and yet we very quickly become guilty of the same thing. You see, it's hard to confess the truths of the Bible. Because the Bible says there's a God who created the world. The Bible says that, that God's character is the moral standard for all things. Jesus said, the way of following me is narrow. None of these are popular things. None of these things make everybody at work say, cool, good job, 
way to be in the majority opinion. You're thinking the way the rest of us are thinking right now. And so the easy temptation for us is to mix one thing with another. That's what's so easy for us. How do we do this? How do we mix Christianity with other religions? Well, we do it with things that we don't normally think are religions. Let me give you some examples, church. We kill the beauty of Christianity when we mix Christianity with politics. When we mix our Christianity with politics, when we try to make Christianity ascendant again by grabbing power through politics, when we try to advance the kingdom of God by advancing some kingdom of man, we are mixing Christianity with another religion. This is a critique of the left, the right, and the middle, in case I'm not being clear. Politics is the religion of the masses. And when we subsume, when we put our Christianity as a service to politics, what we're doing will inevitably kill our Christianity. The same thing is true of the way that we treat our consumer lives. When Christianity just becomes a mean for us to have more options. Think of the idea of church hopping. I'm going to go to this church until my kids need to go to youth group, and then I'm going to go to the cool youth group church. And then once my kids are empty nesters, I'm going to go to this other church because I kind of like the way that they have things over there. Oh, and then my kids move back to town? Well, I'll just go to whatever church they're going to. That'll be nice. It's going to kill our faith. When we make Christianity subservient to consumerism, it will kill our faith. We do the same thing with success. How many times have you thought or believed that if things are going well, it must be because God is behind it? And when things go poorly, it must be because God is punishing me or trying to teach me a lesson. Our success is in no way a barometer of our faith. When we make success a barometer of our faith, what we're doing is actually buying into backdoor prosperity gospel. That if I just do the right things, if I just believe the right things, God will bless me with all the good stuff. And when we see it on TV, when we see it applied to airplanes, we go, oh, that's bad. But then when we apply it to our own promotion or lack thereof, we go, well, I kind of want a little bit of that, right? I kind of want to maintain that control some. When we mix Christianity with a, a view of success, our Christianity will die. We can do the same thing with pragmatism. I'm going to go to church so my kids turn out moral. Honey, we need to start attending church so it'll fix our marriage. Anytime our Christianity is just a means to a pragmatic end, we're not worshiping Jesus. We're worshiping ourselves as a pragmatist. All of these things, 
All of these things are ways that we have allowed, ways that I have allowed my Christianity to be eclipsed by another religion. Because let us not make any mistakes. Anything that you are mixing with your Christianity will kill it. So take a look. Take a look at one of these things or whatever it is that you struggle with. Because that is ultimately the thing that you will worship. Struggling with mixing Christianity and politics? Welcome to your new religion. It's just politics. Struggling with mixing Christianity and success? Welcome to your new religion. It is success. Whenever we mix Christianity with any form of idolatry, all we're left with is the idolatry. It's how the equation works every single time. And Ezra knew this. Ezra knew that if the people of Israel, who had just returned from exile, who had just gotten back into the promised land, if they all of a sudden started turning to the gods of the Ammonites, turning to the gods of the people around them, pretty soon the true religion would be gone. And so how does he respond? He falls to his knees. He tears his shirt. He rips out his hair. And he begins to pray. And he begins to confess. And as he confesses, did you catch the words that he was using? Did you catch the kind of pronouns that he was using? We. Our. Us. Had Ezra married a wife from among the land? No. But what does he say when he begins to confess? It's we, it's our, it's us. He is not looking down on the people who have done this. He is not self-righteous like us. Because as I listed off the different ways that you and I mix our Christianity with other things, as I said each one of them, you probably thought of a person and said, Oh, yeah, like this person does that. I said, you're mixing your Christianity and your politics, and every one of you thought of your uncle. Every one of you filled that box. You know how I know that? Because I did that. Because here's what my heart does. My heart picks out one of those. My heart picks out the fact that I love the goodness of God and the earth and the fact that God has created us for joy, and I allow that, and I mix that, and I allow that to be twisted in my heart so that I can serve the idol of comfort. So I see somebody else serving the idol of politics, and I go, oh, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like the other people on my Facebook feed. For, oh, Lord, they are the sinners who are mixing your good and true religion with something else. Oh, Lord, I am thankful that I'm not like the people who worship success. Thank you that you haven't made me like them. And my self-righteousness comes out on full display. And it is ugly. And I think for so many of us, as we spend our time, especially in this season of life, doom scrolling through social media feeds, doom scrolling through whatever news app we use, it is so easy for us to become self-righteous towards others. But notice that's not what Ezra does. Ezra does not become self-righteous to those other people out there. He doesn't stand in self-righteousness and condemn his brothers and sisters. 
Rather, he stands with them. Even though he wasn't guilty, he begins to stand with them. Why? Why would Ezra do this? Ezra does this because first he's giving us a model of repentance. You want to know what true repentance looks like? Read this chapter. Ezra does not pull any punches. Ezra doesn't say vague things like we've done some sins. Ezra says, here is the part of the Bible that we have not followed, God. And here's the ways that we've done it. He goes into an uncomfortable level of detail in this case. Names the sin fully and is fully honest about the details. But more than that, Ezra is doing something more significant. What Ezra is doing in this passage is he's standing in between the people and God. He's standing in between the people who have mixed true religion with false. And as he stands in between them, he is numbered among them. Just like Isaiah's suffering servant in Isaiah 53 said, I was numbered among the transgressors. He is taking their sins of adulterating their true faith in God and confessing them. He should be, he could be yelling at them to repent, and yet he is standing among them, repenting along with them. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want to take just a second to speak to you. What I'm suggesting, a Christianity that is devoid of political aspirations, a Christianity that is devoid of the trappings of success, a Christianity that is focused on some sort of mediator, that is focused on repentance and belief, maybe a little bit different than the Christianity that you've seen on TV or that you've experienced online. And what I want to challenge you with is this. If you're going to reject Christianity, consider rejecting the real thing. Not something that is watered down and mixed with something else. Consider the claims of the Bible and what the Bible says is true, not just rejecting the TV version that we see. Because when we read this story, and when we think about it, we begin to some, see something that is truly beautiful. As Ezra stands between the people of God and their sins, as Ezra is honest in saying that the, the, the guilt of the people of Israel has mounded up all the way to the sky, that the guilt that they have is higher than their heads, as Ezra stands between the people, he is a picture of Jesus. Jesus is the truer, better Ezra. He stands, Jesus stands between God and us, his people, as the only mediator between God and man. And Jesus doesn't just stand in solidarity with us. Jesus was willingly numbered among us sinners to the point where Jesus took the punishment for our sin. For all the ways that we mix true religion and false, Jesus died on the cross. 
for all the reasons and all the ways that we are self-righteous towards others, Jesus died for. And Jesus was numbered among those sinners. He has taken our sin and he's done more than just pray for us. Though he does do that, even more than pray for us, he has taken our guilt and given us his righteousness. And so church, this is the beautiful truth. That Jesus has loved you and given himself for you. That he has sacrificed his body for you. And that means that we have freedom. We have been accepted by God in a way that we do not and cannot earn. He is in control. And so we don't have to fret. So we don't have to grasp for power to maintain control. He loves us. And so we can rest in that security, not the security of our own creation. There is freedom in Christ, and it is beautiful all on its own. It doesn't need anything added to it. It doesn't need anything to distract from it. And that is what we need to see. That is the reality that we need to live out of, because that is something that is a complete contrast to our culture. Church, communion is a sacrament. Voting is not. Church, news feeds are not your scriptures. The Bible is. Friends, TV anchors are not your true priests. Jesus is. So let us press on. Let us lay aside these distractions so that we, City Church, can be the uncommon family that God is calling us to be, no matter who we vote for in 11 days, so that we can be the unique community centered on Christ and the beauty of his good news, and that the love flows out of that is the sole thing that defines us here together. May we rise to that challenge. Let's pray.